Hello, everybody. You're very welcome to the Open Training College podcast series. In this podcast, Dr. Ray Lynch discusses policy and legislation. Emotional 
videos also covers things like teasing, bullying, and threatening behavior. Very important to watch out for that because that can be very damaging to the child's confidence, their growth, and their self-esteem as well. I mean, physical abuse requires no explanation. It can be trauma or injury to a child, and sexual abuse as well. Keep it in mind as a social professional, uh, you should know that there's different types of sexual abuse. And your module and the legal in-service training, if you're working in service, will cover that in significant detail as well. What the key is, is not only knowing the four types of abuse, you should know the type, the signs, the symptoms, and how to respond, report, and react to the allegations that are brought to your attention as well. So it's key you would know that. And for anyone who's done safe, anyone who's done safeguarding and or children's work training, that's covered in detail in services. Your module also covers it too. These are just some of the publications that will be brought to our attention. I'm not going to go through them in detail, but you'll see that there's a plethora of legislation protecting the rights and safeguarding children today. And your Children's Act from 1908, right up to the Children's First Act of 2015. The whole purpose of legislation is to legislate purposes to better protect and promote the rights of children in care today as well. We also have the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, and Ireland's committed to that, signed up to that as well, where it looks at promoting and the rights of all children, including children with disabilities in Ireland today. You have the Office of Ombudsman, and you have the two reports there, turned and the reporting commission into compliance to child abuse as well. They're interesting reports to read. What they do is they tell us about the historical accounts of abuse in Ireland, but they also give forward to recommendation, and recommendation is very important. For example, coming from the Burns report in 2005, they talked about that going into the future, we should strengthen our reporting procedures and a better reporting system. You can clearly see from legislation that can actually start to happen. And indeed, the report of the Commission to Inquiries of Child Abuse talks about strengthening regulation and the inspection function of child care, child care and health care. That's also happening now as well. So some of those reports are very interesting. They can be difficult reading, but they tell us, I suppose, uh, I suppose they give us an insight into historical uh, issues with child abuse in Ireland and give us a very good account of the recommendations and how to, I suppose, strengthen child legislation and uh, better protect children in Ireland today as well. And we also have Children's First, uh, children's first National gu Guidelines and Guidance and the role of TUSA as well. There are things you should be aware of and know about in relation to, I suppose, publication, legislation and protecting children uh, with disabilities and all children uh, in care today as well. It's key, I suppose, that I suppose there is systems in place to protect children and particularly children with disabilities. For those of you who have worked with children with disabilities, you, you will know why. Children with disabilities can be terribly vulnerable, so as a social care professional, it's key that you are aware of the signs and symptoms of abuse, the types of abuse, how to respond to it, but it's also key that we, we know this at a very deep level because ultimately and unfortunately, some of those previous reports will tell us that children with disabilities may have difficulty communicating in experience or feelings. So the role of frontline staff and social professionals is key. That means it's key that you understand the signs and symptoms of abuse and are vigilant there as well. Children with disabilities are going to be very dependent on the service and dependent on the carer that's there with them as well. They may not be able to disclose or indeed report an allegation of abuse as well. And there, that's where social care professionals come in. You need trained staff to manage this and you need possibly independent advocacy as well who can throw an independent eye on this and, and, and bring a different approach to that as well. Children with disabilities may not be able to interpret some acts of being abused, but may not understand what it is. Again, that's what's important there is vigilance.
vigilant from, from paying smoking care staff. And indeed, education for the child itself involves the child in the process where smoking is the child's main escape day program. Unfortunately, the mother can still think today that children with disabilities are not likely to experience sexual abuse. However, we know from reports and previous reports that that's not the case. And indeed, some children are unable to remove themselves from the situation and are completely reliant on the government. So, in that instance, vigilance, setting, signs and symptoms, and understanding those that see as well. So, guard the best of all staff working with services is very important. Understanding and responding to signs and symptoms of abuse is important, and being vigilant is as well. So, we have a duty of care as social care workers and professionals to ensure that we're aware of this. It's our responsibility to ensure that the children we support and services are adequately protected and safe uh, in our care. So, that's just briefly looking at children and children with disabilities. Adults and some of this theory is quite similar. Adults with disabilities is similar as well. If you look at adults with disabilities or mental health conditions, they too can be vulnerable to abuse uh, uh, in the general population as well, and indeed in terms of today. And many of the reasons there can be because, similarly, an adult with a disability may be very dependent on the service, may not be able to remove themselves from the situation, or may not fully understand what it is that's happening around them as well. It's becoming more important as adults with disabilities
children, again, the types of abuse adults are, are maybe exposed to are very similar. Physical, sexual, psychological, and institutions as well. Now keep in mind, your module goes through those in much more detail to give you examples of what they are, and it's also giving you signs and symptoms of all four as well. Institutional abuse is an interesting one, and of course, what many people think is, is even though people today are many thousands, I think it's four, I could be wrong there, they live in institutionalized settings, even in residential care in the community, it's quite possible to experience institutionalized classrooms. So just keep that in mind that, uh, you know, adults with disabilities may be exposed to institutionalized classrooms, for example, very set rigid routines, very set rigid menus, very set when to go to bed, same thing day in, day out. And that's a form of institutionalized routine, uh, which sometimes adults may be exposed to, not always the case, but watch out for that as well in relation to institutional abuse, because it can go uh, at both risks, if that makes sense. The key principles underlining safeguarding of vulnerable people, of all people, is it's a human right. People have a right to be safe and protected. We all have those rights, regardless of what label has been attached to, and people with disabilities have those rights as well. We all have a right to be safe in our own home, in our own service, wherever we are, we have that right as well. Advocacy is significantly important, and you will find that frontline staff is very good advocates for people with disabilities and children. But independent advocacy is equally as important because an independent advocate can, uh, I suppose, can ask difficult questions. They're not tied into the culture of the service. They feel they can, you know, they can probe that bit more than using a news board. So it's also good to get a fresh, set of, a fresh set of eyes on a situation you may feel uh, that a person may need, I suppose, support for as well. The key principles of safeguarding should all be undertaken in a, in a culture of personal sentiment, and that's to do with the belief system. The belief that everyone has a right to be safe and safe in their own home. Confidential, it should be empowering, provide control to the person in collaboration with and part of the culture as well. So the key principles underlining the whole process of safeguarding, we should be aware of them and know them. What is most important there is, is that it forms part of the culture of the organisation. It's recognising that people with disabilities and children have the same rights we do. It's also recognising that the work of people is consultation and indeed empowerment and that they have some sense of control of the situation as well. Uh, and the whole process is, is to keep people safe that we work with and support. Some of the key legislation that you'll be aware of here is the Assistance Decision Making Capacity Act, the Adult Safeguarding Bill, the National Vetting Bureau, the National Advocacy Service and the National Assistance Information Act. If I jump down to this and I'm going to go back here briefly as well, the Health Information and Quality Authority, the Confidential Recipient and the Agency National Safeguarding Office Safeguarding Team. Just go back here very briefly. If you look at some of this legislation, this is key legislation informing uh, safeguarding of uh, adults and, and indeed children with disabilities. Uh, and it's very important, uh, and it forms very, it's a very important part of the process, if that makes sense. What is interesting is you will focus here on your, uh, well, and focus here on your compulsory questions. If you look at the Assistance Decision Making Capacity Act, it's significantly welcome and an advance in relation to, I suppose, uh, legislation protecting the rights of people with disabilities in Ireland. It has replaced the Lunacy Ireland Act of way back in the 1800s. Uh, and it's all to do with, I suppose, maximise maximize a person's right to make their own decisions with support where required. What's interesting though, even though that act was passed in 2015, aspects of the aspects of it have yet to be met. If you look at the adult safeguarding bill, again, that's there to make a better provision for the protection of care of adults.
out of safeguard resilience. Long about 2017, it's very important and critical piece of legislation that will further protect adults uh, in community care and services today. However, looking at it from a critical uh, aspect as well, that's there since 2017. So you can clearly see that passing of legislation can be a very cumbersome, convoluted, and long process. And even though that bill is of the utmost importance, it's still sitting there and has yet to pass through uh, your office at all as well. Same with the assistance decision making capacity act, while that has been passed, parts of it have not been yet commenced as well. So legislation, while it's important, can be a process of cumbersome, it can go to many stages and it can take a long time to be finalised and be amended and brought, brought through into the final stages as well. So just keep in mind when you look at, I suppose, um, legislation in relation to so there's the key aspect of safeguarding. And what I say to you there is, as a social care professional in services, the key point there is, is to know what types of abuse exist, the signs and symptoms of abuse, and how to respond to it. It's very important because as a social care professional, you do duty of care to ensure that people who do have a responsibility to are, are safe and, and, and supported in the service today. They have a right to be safe, they have a right to be supported. And in doing so, that means that social care professionals have to be trained, have to have refresher training, and have to understand that that training, have to understand the how that training uh, pans out at, at ground level to ensure people are safe in service today. So that's just that aspect of the of the, of the module in detail, or, or sorry, briefly. The rest of the, the module goes through in much more detail as well. So what I want to do now briefly in this one is look at education for people with disabilities in Ireland today. As I said to you earlier on, um, an awful lot of good has happened here. Uh, we're kind of seeing um, mainstreaming of, of children with, 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 uh, with disabilities in, in, uh, in schools today. We're seeing more people with disabilities going to college, more people with disabilities going to further education, and we've seen uh, more people with disabilities engaging in lifelong learning as well. So an awful lot of good has happened here. But I'll go through this in brief detail, and then I'll just come back that a bit more. There's a lot of education supporting and promoting inclusive and equal education for people with disabilities in Ireland through the edu Education Act, which uh, promotes the right to education for all people, and that includes people with disabilities. So everyone has a right to education. With the Equal Status Act, and that prohibits discrimination on nine grounds, one of those grounds is, is, is disability, and it also prohibits discrimination in relation to access to education, admission, transfer, and expulsion. Now, I'll come back to this point of their engagement later on. With the Education Welfare Act, and again, the role of TUSC is brought in there, and this is a therapeutic kind of focus on education where they're supporting parents to take a more active role in their child's education, and they're supporting people to, I suppose, attend school on a more regular basis as well. With the Education for Persons with Special Needs Act, again, and that's all to do with supporting children to have an education in an inclusive environment. There are a couple of exceptions there, and look at those as well. And the Disability Act as well, and that looks for an independent assessment of health and education needs for people with disabilities as well. So there's a lot of education and indeed the UN Convention supports as well, promoting and supporting the rights of education for all children and people, including people with disabilities. And it also legislates for providing the right support and equal access to education as well. What I'd say to you as well, coming down here, some of the national and international influences would be the National Disability Inclusion Strategy. If you look at Section 3 there yourself, which is nice. The EU Disability Strategy, again, that's a wide framework for promoting inclusion.
inclusive education, lifelong learning for people with disabilities. And as I said, the UN Convention looks specifically at Article 24. It looks at, I suppose, uh, the right of persons to education without discrimination and on the basis of inclusivity and equal uh, access opportunities as well. If we just go back here uh, this particular um, um, uh, um, this particular here as well, this particular one, the education, now, there's two exceptions there as well. No, I that has kind of sorry, I just want to move that there because it's kind of blocked me there. Sorry, there's two exceptions there that rule in relation to, I suppose, um, inclusion. Uh, one is where an assessor finds that this would not be in the best interest of special needs, and indeed. Inclusion when it happens where it would not be in the best interest of other children with whom the child is to be educated as well. There's also the term derogation, I looked that up as well, is where a school is not in a position to provide the support the child needs. They may be able to remove themselves from that duty of care and that, that legal obligation because they may look at the cost of that we're not in a position to discuss our resources and that kind of thing as well. What I want to say to you here is think of your proposal request. There has been significant progress in relation to supporting people with disabilities and children to access education, mainstream education, to access lifelong learning and indeed go to college. All of that takes support and it takes good legislation. It also may take, for example, support from special needs assistance. It may take support from assistive technology and indeed it may take accessibility interest there and it will also take in relation to work as well a thing called reasonable accommodation. What I'll say to you is, it's good to acknowledge that that's important, it's good to acknowledge that advancement, it's good to acknowledge that an awful lot of work has actually happened there. But from a critical perspective, think about it as well. If you look at some of the research there, and look at those reports, I'll give you a link there as well. For example, some reports will still tell us today that many people with disabilities are still disadvantaged when it comes to education in Ireland today because sometimes it is just not as accessible as it could be. There may not be enough. Uh, for example, support by assistive technology. At times of cutbacks, sometimes SNAs hours are reduced. So while a significant amount of good has been done, a lot of legislation has been passed, and we've seen significant advancement in the role of inclusive education and indeed equal access to education, there's also a problem there as well because ultimately, today even, many people with disabilities are not accessing third-level education second level education or need lifelong learning as they would like to and there's a number of reasons for that and that can be do with lack of accessibility, lack of support to do for example assistive technology or indeed cutbacks and lack of SNAs as well. So what I'm trying to say to you there is there's a lot of success here, a lot of advancement, a lot of good things happening, there still is remains a lot of challenges in relation to equal access to education as well. So keep that in mind in relation to how you want to approach some of your For those of you who are a long time around the block, I know I am, uh, I suppose I worked in day services and what they used to say back then is day services really were more kind of, um, they were really people went there but they didn't engage in anything meaningful, they really were kind of maybe just minded if they wanted a better word in day services. Or sometimes people would have worked on production lines, if you remember those as well, I would have worked on them and that can be hard enough work and when we worked on production lines, so the person with a disability would get an allowance at the end of the week when we got salary. So back then, day services really, uh, there, was lots, there was lots of significant issues with them. Notwithstanding, the intention was, 
really went looking at skills development and looking at you know promoting self-esteem and, and lifelong learning at that time as well. So we have kind of a number of a four day service settings: so rehabilitation training, there was sheltered workshops, there was volunteering, even supportive employment, and open employment as well. Rehabilitation training was based on personal and social skill development. Sheltered workshops, as I would have worked a lot from the enterprise, specifically set up for people with disabilities. However, you'll find that they weren't paid a salary like their co workers and staff. Then you volunteer, and many people with disabilities today will volunteer in the community as well, and they stay active, they have a sense of value there. The support employment, that's where a person is in employment with ongoing support, and then some people with disabilities that are in the open labour market with no support as well. Uh, what's key is, is though that there was a significant review carried out today's services way back in 2007. The HSE carried out that review and they looked at this uh, very, very in depth as to what are day services doing, what support are they providing, are they meaningful, meaningful, and can better, can better be done. Keep in mind as well that when I worked in day services, the residents, the people, the students, they were called trainees, but they went to day services every day for 15 years and they were still trainees. So, what did they train to do? Technically, nothing. They just were coming there because there was something to do outside of the residential setting as well. Quite different today in relation to day services. We now have new directions. So they're very, very different today, and, and services are quite different. They operate clubs and smaller settings, they're more person centred and based around what it is the person would like to do. So the whole process of new directions is about providing personal support services to adults with disabilities. And new directions set out 12 supports that should be available to all people with disabilities day service and all this around being person centred and taking into account the person's needs. So some of those supports are making choices and plans and making transitions and progression. So it was providing choices to the person with a disability. What is it you want to do? What is it you want to get out of the service? Is it meeting your needs as well? It was also based on inclusion in the local community. So you had an ordinary space, so rather than going to a specialised space, it was based on inclusion in one's own community. I know now many of the pubs currently now in operation is all to do with people being involved in the local community at a very real level as well. It's also to do with accessing education, lifelong learning, training and work. So you're not just a trainee, you're actually training to do something, to be something. And many people with disabilities now get a certificate with CPAC training. There's something at the end of this process for them as well. It should be to do with maximise their independence. So supporting skills development and maximise their independence as well. It's all about health development and personal development as person as well, promoting their self-confidence, their self-esteem, their expression. What's key is here is that new directions are all about having in a person-centered way, persons have a real and meaningful role in their community and out there as well. It proposes the day service should take the form of individualised outcomes and it's outcomes, so it's not outcomes, remember outcomes include numbers. This is to do with the individualised outcomes uh, in, in relation to supporting, uh, I suppose, adults in choosing in accordance with their best interests and their, their set needs, what is it they want and what type of service is it they want to avail of. I just looked look at one piece of research again and I just wanted to show you this as well. Keep in mind, I said to you when I worked in the day services many moons ago, it was all based on, I suppose, maintenance of space. There was no real learning. People were called trainees, but they weren't learning anything. People done the same thing day in, day out. It was very routine. And just was maintaining the same. This is a piece of research done on one aspect of new directions, and it's available there. You can see by 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 Light et al. And this is what I suppose the NDA said about new directions. They said overall it was found that the new directions was a positive experience for people with disabilities and staff. 
talked to some employers and some staff, they have a terribly biased and stereotypical view of people with autism. Like they talk what they very rigid and had to be aggressive and violent and, and they you know obsessed with certain things. And we were saying that may be uh, you know that may be a, a, a characteristic. However, uh, some of the people are who are looking to work with you are very bright and are very intelligent. They have achieved the qualification. They uh, are looking forward to work. They're uh, lovely to work with. They're very uh, great sense of humor. That kind of thing as well. So sometimes there can be incorrect perceptions which may put employers off. Employers may not want to go down the road of reasonable accommodation, or indeed there can be a lack of understanding and support for the use of assistive technology. What I say to you in relation to employment for people with disabilities, there's a lot of legislation out there which is promoting and indeed supporting the employment of people with disabilities. It's not unusual for people with disabilities to work in their community, whether that be support, employment, volunteering, and or in paid employment. And indeed, the new directions, which has, I suppose, looked at a very closely, take their day at the last couple of years. And indeed, that's all to do with a person centric approach to, I suppose, supporting people, have a meaningful day service based on their interests, their gifts, their skills, and their best needs as well. However, a lot more remains to be done because if you look at the research out there, people with disabilities continue to face discrimination in relation to access and employment. Uh, they find it to be very difficult. They find that at times reasonable accommodations are not forthcoming. And indeed, some people will talk about the benefits trap. So, for example, they may want to work, but if they do get a job, they may find that some of their other supports are pulled. So they say, I can't now afford to work because salary I get would not cover what I would lose in relation to the other supports. So keep in mind, a lot done, a lot of good work done, but there still remain significant challenges out there, and people with disabilities will still report today that they do face routine discrimination in relation to trying to access work in their local community as well. So it's a double-edged there as well. A lot of good happening, a lot more needs to be done. Now we look at standards and regulation of social care. Moving on to this one, for those of you who work in residential services, you will be very familiar with the role of HICWA, and indeed HICWA was set up simply to promote the quality and safety, the provision of health and social services for the benefit and welfare of the public. HICWA will be set up in this instance to ensure that services, and here I'm looking at children and adults with disabilities, although they affect older care as well, to ensure that those services are both qualitative, are, are both based on quality, that they're safe, and that they are actually providing, I suppose, a good service to people with disabilities that's safe and based on their necessities as well. So it's all to do, of course, with the good quality and safety of care. That's what HICWA is all about. What I say to you here is, is HICWA was set out under the Health Act of 2007. However, it wasn't until 2014 they started inspecting services. Keep in mind, as I said earlier on, one of the frustrating things with legislation is that Health Act was passed in 2007. It set up the role of HICWA, however, HICWA didn't start commencing the inspection of services until 2014. So again, legislation and commencement of parts of legislation can be very cumbersome and take an awful long time. You have to be there at least six years for HICWA to be established under the Health Act as well. There's two instruments or two sets of regulations which HICWA inspects against. What I say to you as a social care professional is SI 366, that's called Statutory Instrument 366. Most social care professionals, while it's good to know about that, it won't really concern you. As a social care professional, that really is to do with the provider representative or the CEO. 
job to ensure that the service is ready and applied for registration and the rule of education every, every three years as well. So SI366 sets out the legal framework with which the provider representative, the organisation, the CEO, must register that service or renew the registration of each centre. It's usually done way up there at the top of the ethos of the organisation and it doesn't really impact on frontline staff, if that makes sense. What frontline staff are more concerned with is, is these set of regulations called SI367. That's statutory in 367. They set out the legal framework in the centre that will be expected. So literally what SI367 does is, it sets out the legal framework and the regulations that will be expected in each dedicated centre. And it also clearly states what the service provider is expected to do and produce with the evidence. This is very simple. What, what this act does, what the regulation does is, it sets out the, the responsibility of the provider of representative. That's usually a very senior manager. And it sets out the responsibility of the person in charge. So literally the act keeps saying, this is what the provider needs to do, this is what the person in charge needs to do. However, regulation is everybody's responsibility because the person in charge needs to ensure that the social care professional is adequately trained and understands regulation. So when an inspection happens, the social care professional is able to speak to an inspector in, I suppose, an informed way and they know about what it is they need to know as well. Key things an inspector will look for in relation to the regulation of services is is that there's individual plans in place and there's healthcare plans in place for each resident. And they should be set in consultation with the resident and they should meet the resident to the best needs. Ultimately, an inspector can track the staff with that, so that means staff need to know the assessed needs of the resident and need to know the individual care plan for each resident, the healthcare plan for each resident, and how to meet their healthcare needs as well. Frontline staff will also need to be trained in what's called positive behaviour support. And I know from frontline staff, for those of you working there, somebody will do things like, you call it Studio 3, you call it MAPA, Therapeutic Crisis Network might be as well. What's key is, is that if you're working with residents who present with behaviours of concern, you know how to manage that behaviour, you know the antecedents of that behaviour, you know how to, I suppose, uh, both set off that behaviour, you know, uh, try and, and reduce the behaviour, and most importantly, you know how to respond to it in, in a low arousal, in a low arousal, I suppose, therapeutic way as well. And so where required, the service must have been, must have a positive format in place if residents respond or, or, or present with behaviours of concern. Safeguarding is key, you've gone through it. Not only is safeguarding uh, legislated for in relation to you have to have it, it's key. Uh, it will also look to see that all staff working with vulnerable adults and children have safeguards training and are also guard events as well. And indeed, the inspector might talk to you about safeguarding and you might ask for your understanding of it. But at this stage, you know, you know exactly the four types of abuse. You know how to respond and report an allegation and you know who your designated officer is. As frontline staff, you'll be very well trained in that. You know how to respond, react, record it, and you know who to, who to report it to as well. So it will look at a number of key regulations that must be compliant to continue the registration of service or indeed uh, to register new service as well. Risk management is key in relation to supporting residents and meaningful lives in service in the community as well. And 
deep risk management is very important in relation to doing immunity to a care, which is what people do experience with, but you also have to care, which is what people are safe as well. Food nutrition is very important as well, and feed just downstream. What the regulations do is they set out a number of things that must be in place to ensure the assessed needs of the residents are met appropriately, safely, and the quality of life is important there for the residents as well. It's done in consultation with the residents. What's most important is that the residents fight for health there. So the residents are consulted with and spoken with in relation to their care plan. They're involved in the running of the centre. Their religious rights are protected, their political rights are protected. Uh, they have the same rights as everyone else. So it's important that residents' rights are protected in relation to the regulation of services. What I'd say to you here is this is just some of the impact of regulation as well in relation to looking at this from a critical analysis. NICO produced a report in relation to on, on the impact of the first five years of regulation and it found a mixed bag of things. What it said was is that many services they found are consistent improvement year on year in regulation as well and that many services are, are doing good things in promoting the rights of, of, of many residents uh, in services. However, issues continue to remain, particularly in the large institutionalised setting, in relation to privacy and dignity, uh, in relation to promoting privacy and dignity of some residents in those large institutionalised settings. So for those of us who are working in a large institutionalised setting, sometimes that setting may, that premises may not be fit for the state's purpose, and it can impact on the privacy and dignity. Notwithstanding, uh, you may find that some people, the people who work in such services, they may work in a culture of person centeredness, but the, the impact of the premises is not good for the person in relation to own privacy and dignity. It's, so, uh, it's not reflective of staff all the time, it's more reflective of the premises as well. There was significant improvement in safeguarding, but as you'll be aware, we always need to be very vigilant there with safeguarding and ensure that we're doing what we should be doing and ensure our training is up to date and that where required safeguarding plans are in place. Significant majority of providers made improvements in establishing meaningful, meaningful community based roles for residents. However, some have not been as successful. So, some success there, some have not been as successful as well. Sometimes you find where maybe there's institutionalized practices in place that, that those services have not been as successful as others as well. A number of services have yet to improve how they're managing risk. So, again, that's important. Sometimes what we're finding, or what I think we might find there, is, is that at times risk is um, maybe a bit too. Terroristic, so for example, uh, at times uh, activities might maybe over risk or risk out of, out of play, if that makes sense as well. So, risk may not be used as a way to promote uh, a more inclusive life community. Risk sometimes is used to actually stop activities happening, and that may be done based on wanting the best for the resident or looking at safety as well. However, a lot of good has gone on there as well. Conroy and Maher produced a report as well in 16, and they were very interesting. They said that the inspection process was not inspired by a social model of disability, and the voice of the residents was faint in the report as well. That's a very interesting finding, and that's a very interesting report to read. Uh, the references there in, 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 at the back of this, um, the back of this uh, presentation is very important. But what's key there is for those of you who are familiar with the inspection process, at the time that that piece of research was done. The voice of the resident was quite faint report. You will now see current reports open up with the views of the resident. So Hickwa looked at that quite closely and said, okay, let's put the view of the resident in the open statement of all reports from here on in. So that's what Hickwa have done. So regulation has a lot has a, has a lot of a lot of positives there. However, a lot more still needs to be done. And what I say to you too about legislation, think like the Health Act as well, think about your compulsory question too. 
when I'm thinking about legislation again, on the back there as well, legislation sometimes will refer to people with disability as challenging or challenging behaviour. It talks about their home as being a designated centre. It talks about, uh, um, what else might I say, uh, designated centres or homes. Uh, it calls, it repeatedly refers to people as service users. At times, there's been, I suppose, an absence of the direct involvement of people with disabilities in the drawing up or the final, finalising of legislation, although people with disabilities were involved with it. However, what many people will say is, is if that, if people with disabilities live in a home, a small community home, that's their home. So look at the legislation, it refers to it as a, 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 a dedicated centre. To be very, very vague, the wider community doesn't know what that means. It actually is a home. So the language is from legislation. May need to be reduced, uh, may not be person centered. It also talks about the concept of challenging behavior as well, and that's a term that you know, can have a, you know, it may need to be reviewed down the line as well. While people with disabilities may present with behavior that needs, that needs support and needs intervention, uh, the word challenging behavior can be a bit you know, interesting from a wider perspective as in what is it saying with people with support. Uh, I think designated centers is a very interesting word. Uh, when we're referring to people with disabilities and whether they live, that's their home. Uh, they have a right to a home, uh, but yet legislation refers to it as, as a centre. Uh, that's not very person-centred, and, and indeed it's something that a social professional should be aware of that. Uh, however, that's what the legislation presents as. Um, so if you look at your compulsory question as well, you're going to discuss the level of success legislation has in promoting a more equal and inclusive society for people with disabilities. I've gone through the key learning outcomes of this model. I've gone through them briefly. And I looked at it briefly, and what I kept saying was, is legislation has done a lot of good things. If you look at historically how people with disabilities were treated in the country, quite appalling from way back in time. Uh, uh, very poor, um, very poor legislation for equality, very poor legislation for human rights. People with disabilities lived in large institutions and were not supposed to make any contributions to the community. They had no value role. Uh, and they made no meaningful participation to the community. They weren't consulted with as individuals about their care. Uh, there was a lot of managed practices. So, for example, people got up at a certain time, went to bed at a certain time, that kind of thing as well. A significant level of that is behind us, and indeed, there's an awful lot of growth happening out there with regarding legislation for people with disabilities. There's an awful lot of person centeredness happening, and it's key to bring that up and, 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 and get that as well. There's a lot of good happening to ensure people are adequately protected, they're safe. Uh, you'll find that staff are, are working their work on a person-centred human rights model of care as opposed to a medical model. So there's been a huge amount of success. We are seeing people with disabilities now living in smaller houses. They're more person-centred. We're seeing people with disabilities now in mainstream classes. We're seeing people with disabilities in college. We're seeing people with disabilities in place of work. However, the key side, the flip side is, is that there's also a backdrop to that. A lot more still needs to be done. And if you look at any research, and I'll give you some there as well, we still know that people with disabilities, what I would say is disability is still a human rights issue. Because people with disabilities still face discrimination on a daily basis. They still are not as included as people without disabilities. And indeed, they may be subject to discrimination such as, you know, well, you know, indirect discrimination, you know, lack of knowledge in the wider community, you know, and labels that put on the whole, you know, what are they like, what do they do, are they challenging? All that kind of thing as well there. So a lot more needs to be done to ensure people with disabilities are accessed to their community and their rights are protected, like ours as well.
keep in mind that still quite a number of people live in the institutions as well and in appropriate settings where although the culture may be person centered, staff might promote person centered culture, the building of the premises are impacting on the rights too as well. So you need to be balanced here as well. Legislation does a lot of good things. It's pushing and pushing the whole time. However, people with disabilities will tell you themselves that a lot more needs to be done. We still are not as included as we should be. Our rights are still not protected as they can be and that they still face discrimination and exclusion at times as well. So that's important to keep out as well. But, but legislation is key because what it does is it organises society and protects the rights of all citizens. It also determines the statutory obligations and the rights and responsibilities of individuals and authorities who to legislate applies. For example, people with disabilities living in residential settings now, those services have to adhere to legislation to protect the rights of people with disabilities. Legislation can protect the most vulnerable in society. It can protect against discrimination and abuse. It can determine the standards that services should be setting as a HICWA, as a childcare standards as well. It can determine a person's rights and entitlements. So it gives us a framework to work on. We know exactly what I'm entitled to, why am I not getting that as well. And it can provide a remedy for an injustice. So for example, under, like, under registration and indeed um, uh, the Health Act, if a person with a disability is not receiving the service it should be, why is that the case? And we can provide us again what we want to do about it. If you think of the model of disability in relation to successive legislation, be the old exclusion model, the institutionalization model, uh, a model where I suppose people with disabilities had no input at all into their own life, uh, their rights were not protected in any way. Think of the inclusion continuum, we're now looking at a concept of empowerment and advocacy of rights. A lot of good is happening, however, balancing act, uh, many people with disabilities they still face discrimination, still, still face exclusion, still can't access the, the right support, and legislation in itself um, you know, has not been adequately strong enough to ensure that people with disabilities do experience rights like anyone else as well. So we're looking at that from a very critical point of view. A lot of good has happened, a lot of issues still remain. Issues with legislation in general are it can be very confusing. The language can be very confusing and not person centred. I spoke to you about designated centres. Uh, if you look at some of the language in the Education Act, will be could be maintained. It can be confusing. Legislation tends not to be very accessible and not mainly accessible to people with disabilities. There can be loopholes in it. For example, reasonable accommodation or derogation is a loophole. So, for example, you know, an employer can say, yes, we'd like to employ people with disabilities make those accommodations but when reasonable we cannot afford to do so. Legislation can be very time consuming, for example, as I said the safeguarding bill 2007 still has not been enacted. And parts of legislation that has been passed has yet to be met. So parts of the Epson Act has not been enacted. And if you look at yourselves, the registration of social care professionals under the Health and Social Professions Act still hasn't happened. Yet that act was passed in 2005. Uh, so legislation has many issues and, and complexities as well with it. Issues specific to people with disability, I don't just go through all these as well. If you look at Article 3 of the Equal Status Act, it's all about protection and equality and the inherent dignity of individuals. It's also non-discrimination. Yet a piece of research in 2018 said, in general, people with disabilities experience higher risk of discrimination in Ireland than people without disabilities. So you can see the UN, the UN Convention there and the Equal Status Act, it's all about promoting uh, equal rights and, 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 and discourage discrimination. However, research tells us that people with disabilities may face discrimination. 25, Article 25 of the Health and Disability Act is also with the 
providing the support for health and the people have an entitlement to health as well. But yet many people with disabilities find the cost of, of, of health in medical care systems convoluted and cannot afford the initial cost of health as well. So while the legislation is good and improves the situation, there still is a drawback there that public cannot afford additional cost related to health. Education. People are entitled to education under Article 24 and the ethics act. Yet research there says there is discrimination for good education. And the findings that research show that people with disabilities repeat and don't like to experience discrimination compared to those without disabilities. And if you look at work and employment and the Employment Equality Act, people have a right to work, to freely choose their work and not be discriminated against. People with disabilities are looking for work or the workplace, the odds of workplace discrimination are quite high and not of people without disabilities. So what I've just done there very quickly is in relation to that is I've told you there that all these conventions, all these policies, all these procedures, the practice legislation, they have done a lot of good. However, research is telling us a lot more needs to be done. So look at that research yourselves and, and see what uh, how you can best manage your critical analysis for question one. Just to conclude, from the cell numbers, I have issued a number of policies passed, a lot of legislation protecting the rights of people with disabilities, that's the Equality Act, Employment Act, Disability Act, F Act. Legislation. We also ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons in 2008, and that's to do with ensuring that the rights of people with disabilities are, are protected and are active citizens in the community as well. All of these both have made a considerable impact on the overall protection of people's rights and the quality of life and the overall quality of life. That's supposed to be saying. However, more needs to be done, and legislation has not, I suppose, addressed many of the situations for all people with disabilities and people with disabilities still face those issues that are today as well. If you look at Andrews, I'll give you the, 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 I'll give you the link to that as well. He claims that anti-discrimination policy is a four-track record in the health and city population that was designed to protect and there's two main explanations for that. If you look at legislation, it may cause accommodation costs on potential employers and those employers may be making benefits or reluctant to hire persons with disabilities because they might see it as being just an additional cost or they may feel they have to make an accommodation that they cannot do. So this may actually prove as a reason or a false instance not to employ people with disabilities, although there are people with disabilities working out there. And Magnus also talked about resource and size barriers as well. So Magnus said there is, it's clear as well that it's not only to do with employers, there's an awful lot of attitudinal barriers that people with disabilities face. So for example, there may be a lack of support personal assistance, assistive technology, and there's also society barriers that people face on a day-to-day basis where people may be subject to discrimination or need assumptions about their ability and that can impact significantly on their ability to gain or access education or gain meaningful employment as well and indeed that can impact on their confidence and indeed their ability to hold a meaningful role in their community as well. Overall what I'm saying there is, is a lot of good has happened, a lot of legislation has been passed and that has resulted in many positive for people with disabilities. However, the legislation can be problematic, and indeed research will tell us that a lot more needs to be done. So in relation to your first question, think about it that way. A lot of good has happened. You know the act, you know the legislation, you know the convention, uh, and there's been uh, evidence to tell us that that has impacted very significantly uh, and, and in a good way on people with disabilities. However, it's not that unusual for many people with disabilities to still experience some level of exclusion or a different type of you know, exclusion or inclusion related to people without disabilities as well, that sometimes the legislation is not as effective as it could be or was meant to be from the onset as well.
lot of that that tends to be by right cover the key learning that you will need to cover your exam. And I looked at that first question in, in, in detail as well. Um, so I suppose ultimately you need to look at the module in more detail and see it's there. I've just covered the key learning outcomes uh, that you should know as a social professional anyway, but that also would help you with the exam. And particularly question one there, I looked at that quite critically. I looked at the positives and some of the challenges that still remain. So that's that. Uh, I'll let Nolan come back in now. Thank you very much, Ray. Ray, can you stop sharing your PowerPoint? I can. Has it gone? gone. Perfect. So if anybody wants to, people want to unmute their buttons uh, so that you can participate. And if anybody has any particular questions that they'd like to ask, Ray or myself. Oh, very quiet. You answered everybody's questions, Ray. Well done. I, I hope it is. I mean, are people okay with the, the way I explained your proposal question there? Yeah? You kind of know what's expected of you now. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So critical analysis is looking at the positives and looking at the challenges or some of the difficulties as well. And there's multiple difficulties with legislation, multiple difficulties. Uh, not only the time consuming, it, it's, not, it, it's not always achieving, uh, uh, I suppose, in totality, what it's set out to achieve as well. Uh, so it can be uh, difficult as well. And indeed, if you look at some of the language used in it, it's very convoluted, not easily accessible to people with disabilities either. But it's key to state that it has done a lot of good as well. And it's key to state that for those who are, are many people working in services, yeah? Yeah. 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 Services today are in a very different place than they were when I worked them 20 years ago. And in a very different place than 30 and 40 years ago as well. There is a significant amount of good and person centered services compared to the services today. Uh, and you'll find very well trained staff working in service too uh, in relation to providing a good quality and safety care to people with disabilities. Uh, notwithstanding, you know, it's an evolving process and there's no room for, I suppose, um, no complacency either. So the same question has been covered very well there by Ray. You can't really go wrong on that. The other questions, there are four other questions and you're asked to answer two. And some of you may already know this from talking to your tutors. Uh, there's a question on the area of child protection. Although the module deals with both child protection and safeguarding, this question is relating to child protection. There's another question then on new directions and HICWA standards and their impact on services and service users. So again, Ray has covered that. There's a question in relation to inclusive education for people with disabilities. And for each of these, you're asked to critically look at the situation as it is now. And then there is a final question on the area of employment and people with disabilities, with particular reference to the employment right in the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Everything you need to answer those questions is in the module. And Ray has given you very good pointers about how you should approach them. So if anybody has any other questions at this point, no? I just I think I just mentioned from the tutor point of view um, that the critical analysis is massively important if we're looking at getting marks in the exams. So really work on that aspect of it, particularly the theme question, because it's all there in front of you. So I mean that's a pre-prepared question. It's, it's you should be getting good marks in your theme question now. Shouldn't be a problem at all. Now. And this is the last module of the year, so it's good to put in the effort for the last the last hurrah. And just to let you know, we had some we asked people for feedback from the quality and risk exam, and one of the themes that came up on a number of occasions was it didn't just go over the feedback, but it also came back from the tutors was having a word count. So because this is an exam, we can't really give a word count. 
and with the changes that we had made, we have had to put them through our own processes of our teaching and learning and assessment committee and the academic council. But what we're giving instead is what we're calling a word count range. So this will be included in the protocol that goes out to you. I hopefully I will send it to you this week or maybe next week. So the word count range for the same question is between 2,000 and 2,500 words. And for the unseen questions, each each answer should be between 1,500 and 2,000 words. And I suppose the important thing is to remember that uh, it's a long question. A long answer doesn't necessarily mean a good answer. It's about the quality of what you're writing. So, and you'll know that from experience now. The discipline of keeping within a certain word range helps you to be clear in what you're saying and to make your point without too much faffing around and too much extra information that's not required. I just, I come in there again, just make sure to read the questions, especially like the, the seen question is fine because they're in front of you and you can lay it out, but the unseen questions, just make sure to read them and make sure that that's what you're answering. Um, because it's very easy to go off on the tangent and next thing is people have five or six hundred words written and they don't apply. So just make sure to keep directing that discussion back to the question. Every couple of sentences, look at the question, say, am I answering it? And keep coming back to it. And can I, I, sorry, I, I, can I just say there, sorry, going on quite as well, sorry, can I just say, uh, Patrick asked me a very good question, but I yes. couldn't see all of it. I don't know if you could see it. Now. I can see it now. Can you, can, will I read it out or do you, have you, do you see it? No, I can only see a part of it. Um, well, I'll I, I read out the question and I'll let you answer it, Ray. Is that okay? If I can. <laughs> of course you can. First of all, he's flattering you a bit. He says, thank you, that was great. Um, but then he also says, when answering the same question, can we highlight how employers create barriers to reasonable accommodation? And is this seen and treated as breaking the law if proven? That's a very good question. Uh, what I'd say to you is, make sure they give it your children in relation to answering that. There's two parts there to that, Patrick, and nobody's asked, and you've kind of asked, I thought you asked a different question, but I don't see it all. I thought you were asking there about, in relation to, I looked, so I briefly critically analysed a number of pieces of legislation and uh, strategies in, in that presentation, and I thought you were asking, do you have to look at all of them? That's something you would make sure you only give it your children, if, if that makes sense. So if you're going to look at those quickly, uh, critically assess the level of success legislation has, Again, your tutors can answer this, but I'm making the assumption you cannot critically analyse every piece of legislation I go through there. I don't think the exam would allow for that. So you need to make sure you're focusing on key aspects of it, but make sure your tutor your knows what you're doing, if that makes sense as well. Uh, what I'd say to you, Patrick, is, uh, and you'll find some cases on, is actually, uh, employers can discriminate in relation to provide reasonable accommodation. However, it's very, very hard to prove it. It's very hard to prove it because what happens is they can claim that they don't have the resources and or the facility to do what may be required from them. However, there have been some cases taken that would have been successful. I will actually send only a link maybe to one of those as well. Uh, it'll be tomorrow. I don't have it at hand with me. Uh, but I would say to you, it's not that easy to prove uh, because the legislation technically isn't going to opt out there anyway. Uh, technically, I can't do it, so you know that kind of thing as well. Uh, you'll find with the Disability Act as well, the Disability Act talks about things like, you know, available resources, which, you know, can be a problem for children with disabilities in relation to their assessment of needs. 
living a more fulfilling and inclusive life. But sometimes the problem there would be availability of resources as well. And that can be a challenge because the resources aren't there, the legislation kind of is not strong enough to legislate what can be in place. For example, I'm sure does anyone work in, in education? You know, for example, in GMC special needs assistance can be cut dramatically when there are times of crisis in the country as well. Sometimes all the support is not always there as well. It's very hard to prove uh, in relation to reasonable accommodation, but there have been some cases, and I've been only at least one or two of them uh, down the line. Just to reiterate as well, uh, make sure you think people are through or when you decide what what legislation you're going to um, analyze for want of a better word. And can I just say on that? So the legislation, employment equality legislation, does include uh, that nominal cost. So an accommodation should be not prohibitive for the employer if they're going to build a ramp or whatever. But I think the cases that have been heard look at things like the size of the organization, the budget available to the organization, the cost of the accommodation. Um, so an, an employer who's determined not to take on the person because they think it's too expensive probably can argue it. Um, but there's also the argument that why should an employer be the entity that has to bear the cost of this and should the state have a role in funding those types of accommodations anyway they don't at the moment uh, but like grace it's very hard it will be a big task to take on trying to prove an employer wrong if they're determined that they don't want to provide the reasonable accommodation and underneath that is probably a not wanting to take the person on anyway and if you don't think what i talked about the concept of the value base in wider society and society latitude as well yeah, I think they're gone now uh, in the super win, but they had a really good value base in in employing and actively seeking to employ people with disabilities um, and they won awards for it. I think they're gone now. It's the super win gone, I'm not too sure. But uh, they would have won awards for, for the way in which they actively sought. They, they actually positively discriminated to employ people with disabilities uh, because they, as, as an organisation, they had a very, I suppose, uh, a very strong value base in relation to equality and inclusion. And they didn't see disabilities as being a barrier. They saw that we more, you know, we welcome people with disabilities to work in, in, our, uh, in our establishments as well. Uh, I'm not too sure that establishment is gone. I can't remember if it's has gone. I think it's been something else now. There it is gone, yeah. Shane has a question. Can we hear you, Shane? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um, no, it was just kind of on the point you were making there about um, how the employer could argue that it shouldn't be on them, that it should be on the state. Could you mention kind of like the building regulations, how they've changed to accommodate that to a degree now? But obviously that won't work in older buildings, but yeah. in newer ones... And if, like, you were, yeah, if you were taking a case, you probably would do that. Yeah, um, yeah, wouldn't really matter in this kind of like... Wouldn't be any point mentioning it in this, would there? Well, it, it certainly wouldn't do you any harm, Shane. I mean, it, I suppose the more information, the more you can show your understanding of the breadth of legislation and the impact on the inclusiveness of people with disabilities in our society, the better. But now, I don't know anything about building regulations, and whoever's marking your exam yeah. would have to. <laughs> no, I, I just know that it's for accessibility-wise. Yeah. I can't remember the year, but I know they have to have ramps and the wider doors and wider hallways and all that. Like, what type of pets? So I, I can give you an example. Uh, I, I, my, my, my first apartment <coughs> I bought, and it was cost those regulations. And it was a small apartment, but it had a very, very big bathroom. Uh, and that was to do with regulation and making sure it was clean enough to just be in a wheelchair. It was up to my skirt. <laughs> it was bizarre. <laughs> I, 
like they hadn't actually fought that through credit with the dark and dugout. So I had this kind of this small dip of a big, big battle with one people. You know, like, uh, but I mean, if, if, if it was on a ground floor, you'd say that's fine, but that just looks like there was no issue. It was one of those, you know, duplex. Pizza purpose, but yeah. Yeah, but, uh, but, but buildings now have, have to be accessible, and that's in the, um, in the, in the, in the each department, accessibility will cost in the, the department in, 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 um, in government about accessibility um, as well. Yeah. Uh, even transport, people were talking about the great, the great strides we made in transport. There's many people who say, but there isn't an adequate disability space on the transport, and it can be left waiting too long to get from point A to point B. Melda, Melda, will you unmute yourself? Yeah, I just on that point there, um, that I have a services that I used to work with who he himself and his girlfriend were both wheelchair users. And when they went on a date, they had to go separately and leave separately because there was never access to wheelchairs in the bus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you can see where, although think there's great strides forward in that they, the guys can drive their wheelchairs straight on the bus because the ramps are down and everything, but they can't both go together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things as well that will probably help your answers is if you can demonstrate the implications or the application of the legislation or the policy in real life. So if you have examples like that, for example, there, Amanda, where, yes, accessibility is being provided, but there's this limitation, for example. Yeah, yeah. the, the workplace examples are really important and then strengthen up your discussion and your critical analysis. Uh, I suppose what, what is important well is that you know obviously you need to be able to describe what you're doing but i think um both michael and, and he said as well and, and shane as well make sure as well that you don't describe it but you're actually given the you know this is really what's good about this but this is some of the issues and the challenges that remain so you look at that that, that simple critical analysis so think of critical analysis very simply here is what's happening this is good it has some good benefits across the board but there still is possible challenges and even that little example used there by yourself about is very interesting. Like we wouldn't accept that as people without disabilities. You know, well, you can go now and your appointment go now. Fine. Would you actually be quite okay that that's acceptable for some people who have disabilities who just have to use wheelchairs? That just isn't an adequate space there for them to to go out like any couple of words together. They have to go separately. Um, uh, that would be acceptable in the wider population at all. And um, it's an interesting example used there as well. Notwithstanding, it's great that buses are accessible and the ramps are there and people can use them. Uh, but yet, uh, it, it's not uh, as important. It doesn't promote, I suppose, uh, a natural, uh, you know, connection there with people go together at, at that time. Okay, it's coming up to half past eight, and we thought I thought we'd get to be an hour, but Ray was in the black. Plenty to say, which was great. Does anybody have one final question, or are we everybody happy? Is it best to look at the exam? You do very well there and uh, uh, enjoy it. And indeed, uh, when, you, when you're finished, uh, as all of us so much workers enjoy whatever you do. Best of as well. You've only one year left after this, is that right? Yeah, you're, you're nearly there. Best of luck with the rest of it. Uh, an unusual end to the year, so that was COVID. Mm. Uh, you went from blended learning to online learning very quickly. So uh, uh, hopefully, the work as well, I'm sure will. And, and it's best of luck with the exam. And obviously, you can do everything through that. Make sure you're giving keep the computer in relation to then make sure you're on the right work for your exam. So Ray, thank you very much. Um, Ray also, and I also want to thank Ray for preparing the uh, additional overheads that were are put on, have been put on the learning centre. So there's more detail in the overheads than you would that would normally be there, plus lots of additional reading. So thanks for that, and thank you for your.
great presentation today. And one final thing as well, on each report I refer to there, the link here at the back, so you see exactly where I got it. So you have those reports if you want to refer to them. Now, I'm not saying you have to do all that initial read, but if you want a bit more information, um, remember where I talked about the, the challenges uh, identified by lying there in that report, I sent that slowly. So if you want some more direct information on the challenges of, of discrimination in Ireland, that's there. I sent the report from Convoy Group as well, and the report from the Higgle report from 2019, so that's all there. And the, some of them have lovely executive summaries. Yes. So previously on page one and two, all the issues people do face, which is a nice way to both help you study. It's there in a nutshell for you on those reports as well, so you don't have to significantly read through every page and memorize it. But it gives you a very good insight in relation to some of the challenges that remain. Okay, the very best of luck, everybody. And uh, the exam will be on the 4th of August, so you've got time to get yourself sorted out for it. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you.